0: Morning. Thank you very much for that kind introduction and let me first of all uh, thank the organisers for having invited me and let me congratulate them for having convened this extremely interesting seminar. When I first received the invitation of course I, it was something I just had to accept. Um, how often do you receive an invitation from uh, an organisation whose acronym spells the word POMP? <laughs> uh, that's only Polish courage I think can, uh, can account for that. I also accepted out of nostalgia. I first set foot in these grounds in March of 1981, and of course everything uh, brings me back to the transition time and time again, because although I was was still undergraduate then, the reason for my first visit was that Felipe González had been invited to speak here by Sir Raymond Carr. And this was only a a few weeks after that terrible episode, the uh, failed coup that some of you will recall on the 23rd of February, uh, 1981. And I have never forgotten how pale and worried Philippe Monthalus still looked uh, three weeks after the event. Um, I've been been learning a great deal during the the last uh, day and a half, or rather uh, evening and and morning. Um, And I'm very pleased to have come because... As a result of the Arab Spring, I've been rethinking and re reading about uh, transitology and its strengths and weaknesses. And I've been um, daring enough, to, or mad enough to lecture in Tunisia and Egypt, uh, not very successfully in Egypt, as you can see from the results, uh, trying to advise the governments, the successive governments there, on, on how to uh, deal with their transition issues. So, very quickly, I'm going to start by looking at the so called Spanish model. And I will criticize um, the transitology literature about the Spanish model. Um, because I think that's something that that needs doing. And I will then (coughs) look at the negotiations themselves and try to tease out the differences and the similarities that exist with the Polish uh, experience. And finally, I will look at some of the criticism that is currently leveled at the transition in Spain, uh, both um, from from the academic world and also from society more broadly. As you all know, Spain is experiencing a very difficult economic crisis, which is Um, resulting also in serious uh, political uh, difficulties, having major political consequences. And some observers would argue that, in fact, the whole transition settlement is currently in danger of unravelling altogether. Um, So let me start by saying that, as you all know, the Spanish transition was one of the first in the so-called third wave of transitions, as Samuel Huntington has called them. And this, therefore, means that by 1989, it was very well known in Poland. Uh, Gieremek and Michnik and others have specifically said that they um, they're on record saying that the Spanish experience influenced them, that they had visited Spain, they had talked to Spanish leaders to see how they had done it. So I think the Spanish model, it can be said, that the Spanish model was very much uh, on their minds. Now, as you know... um, The the Spanish transition, partly because it was one of the first, only Portugal and Greece preceded it, has become to some extent uh, the quintessential negotiated or pacted transition. Uh, Scott and Mainwaring have declared it to be the most successful transition by transaction, and Gunther and Higley have called it the very model of the modern elite settlement. So that's quite a a big uh, thing to live up to. Um, And it's understandable, of course, that the Spanish experience should have attracted so much attention and and interest both among academics and practitioners, particularly, of course, given Spain's very turbulent political history, not only in the 20th century with the Civil War and 40 years of authority and rule under Franco, but also uh, the 19th century. I think more uh, Spanish uh, prime ministers were murdered uh, between uh, 1870 and 19. Uh, than in any other Western European country. In fact, possibly in any other European country, um, including Central and Eastern Europe. Um, I, however, have a problem with this transition as transaction narrative in the sense that I think that it portrays an overly simplistic um, picture which is distorting, which has distorted our understanding of the process and continues to cast a a slightly ambiguous shadow today. First of all, because this emphasis on pacts and negotiated agreements between elites has shifted our attention away from the very spectacular socioeconomic transformation that Spain experienced prior to democratization. In fact, I've lectured in Central and Eastern European countries where there was quite a lot of confusion about this. Um, Extrapolating from their own experiences, audiences there seem to believe that Um, serious economic growth really only took place after democratisation with Spain's accession to the EC in 1986. In fact, the most important social and economic transformations took place under the Franco regime in the 1960s and early 70s. Um, And as a result of those, Spain was already a relatively prosperous free market economy with a relatively large, stable uh, uh, middle class by the time of Franco's death in 1975. Secondly, this emphasis on elites and the role of pacts um, runs the danger of leaving uh, the social movements out of the equation. Um, And in fact, I think academics could explore far more than they have done uh, the nature of the precise relationship between those political elites that uh, carried out those pacts and, and their social base. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that this elite vision has tended to underestimate the pressure from below, which very often led to those um, negotiations in the first place. Thirdly, this emphasis on elite pacts also draws attention away from the highly favorable European context in which the Spanish transition took place. In other words, um, the promise of European community membership uh, and more generally a favorable international dimension here Played a role which which this narrative uh, often often misses or or underplays very significantly. And finally, this kind of narrative can also lead us to underestimate some of the dangers and the pitfalls that existed on the road to democracy. For example, the Spanish transition is almost invariably described as peaceful. You will always see this adjective um, in standard accounts of the process. But in fact, about 360 people were killed in acts of political violence between 1975 and 1980. And I'm not just talking about terrorist acts, I'm actually talking about clashes with police, demonstrations, strikes, marches, and so on. So in fact, the Spanish transition was actually probably more violent than the Polish one, and than many others, in fact. And this is important because it was partly the fear of social confrontation which actually explains why those negotiations took place. Um, If if the Spanish transition had a slogan, it was probably never again, never again a civil war, never again a French recital struggle among Spaniards. So if we take the violence out of the equation, again, again it it doesn't really um, help us to understand how the process took place. Let me say a little more before I move on to the negotiations themselves about um, things that I think are important. to keep in mind when we look at this process first of all regarding the nature of the frank regime regarding regime society relations regarding the role of the state and regarding the role of the armed forces all of these issues have been raised in the course of uh, the sessions yesterday and today but i'd like to mention a few specific aspects first of all um someone mentioned yesterday Juan Linz's famous definition of authoritarian regime let me pay tribute by the way to uh Juan Linth, who is a great uh, a great friend and colleague of mine, he died on the 3rd of October of the last year, as you probably know. Um, Juan described the Franco regime as the quintessential authoritarian regime. And this has important consequences for the, the way in which these negotiations took place. First of all, Franco Spain was to some extent what Richard Gunther has described as a no party state. The single party existed and was influential in the 30s and the 40s, but was an empty shell by the time of Franco's death in 1975. This therefore meant that the party wasn't represented in these negotiations. It didn't need to be because it wasn't a significant factor. Secondly, uh, Juan Linz's idea of limited pluralism. There had been a lively debate within the Franco regime, raging for at least a decade uh, concerning what needed to be done after Franco's death, and how Franco's elites needed to prepare for the consequences of Franco's death. Thirdly, authoritarian regimes very often develop what Lintz and others have described as, as institutional facades. In other words, in order to legitimize themselves, they create um, laws, procedures, sometimes even parliaments, which are there basically um, as self-legitimizing um, instruments And these authoritarian regimes are often very curiously legalistic. And as a result of all of that, ample use was made of these these legal uh, procedures, laws, and institutions in dismantling that same authoritarian regime. A very important fact often missed in comparative studies is that by 75, the Fanker regime was a civilian-led authoritarian regime. It was not a military dictatorship, contrary to uh, popular perception sometimes. And this explains why the army played no role whatsoever in the negotiations themselves, or in fact, in the transition process overall. Ironically, one could argue, in fact, that the Polish armed forces were a much more significant actor in the Polish transition than their Spanish counterparts. Of course, one would have to factor in King Juan Carlos's role as uh, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. I wrote a biography of the king a few years ago, so I don't want to underestimate his role. But having said that, it's interesting how Uh, the army was really almost entirely excluded from the process. Another important point often overlooked is that in authoritarian regimes, it is empirically and conceptually possible to distinguish between state and regime. Um, And the point I want to stress here is that by the time of Franco's death in 1975, the Spanish state had largely drifted apart from the regime. Um, It was manned by meritocratically recruited civil servants who were either apolitical or even, in fact, anti-Francos, probably, many of them, in their political leanings. So this became a force for stability and continuity. Finally, um, as a result of the peculiar nature of this authoritarian regime, and this is true of Poland as well, and of Hungary as well, um, and of South Africa, in fact, as we've heard earlier, political society had reemerged. Uh, by the time of Franco's death in 1975. In other words, although political parties were still illegal or illegal, as Lentz has also called them, they were largely tolerated. Um, Citizens, well-read citizens or well-informed citizens, knew who the party leaders were. They more or less knew what their political uh, programs stood for, etc. In other words, these interlocutors were already in place by the time of Franco's death. I won't say much more about the opposition uh, other than the fact that it was a combination of, new, of the new and the old. Um, the, the Socialist Party slogan captured that rather well. Un viejo y nuevo partido, an old and new party. It was over 100 years old, but the leader was 32, and he'd only joined in the uh, late 60s himself. Let me now turn, on, turn to the negotiations themselves, and again I'll try to tease out these um, similarities and differences. Um, The first obvious point to make, which I think hasn't perhaps been stressed sufficiently so far, is that negotiations only happen when there is a stalemate. Or perhaps um, Colin did mention this. Um, But this is a very important, obvious but a very important point to make. Um, And the balance of power between the negotiators can shift over time in the course of negotiations, but this is a fundamental starting point. Of course, the dynamic in Spain was peculiar for several reasons. Um, First of all, but the opposition was largely excluded from the early stages of the transition. It was the king and his chosen uh, prime minister, Adolfo Suarez, who basically initiated the transition by succeeding in getting the Francoist Assembly, the Francoist Parliament, or Cortes, to effectively vote itself out of, out of existence and pave the way for democratic elections. Um, very importantly, Suarez put this decision to a referendum which he won handsomely. And so I may not have been a may not have been a great intellectual but he was a wonderful tactician and therefore he didn't actually start negotiations with the opposition until after the referendum because of course this meant that he was the only person who had any kind of popular mandate which the opposition didn't have so this I think is very is, is peculiar and specific to the Spanish um, context um, why did they negotiate in a nutshell I think the king and and so I negotiated because they needed free elections and a democratic constitution to legitimize the monarchy. That, is, that was the essential reason. In addition to that, of course, they had to defuse social tension. There was very significant, intensive and extensive uh, popular mobilization in the early 70s and throughout the transition period until, say, basically. And we also have the economic factor, true of uh, South Africa, Poland, and Hungary, as we've heard, in this case, it was a different economic crisis. In the Spanish case, it was still the impact of the 1974 oil crisis, which Spain was really only beginning to suffer in 1976-77 in the wake of Franco's death. Finally, the European dimension, again, absolutely crucial. Um, the king and Swadith needed to convince the European community and its major European partners, above all Germany, Britain and France, <coughs> played a far more modest role in this case, that they were genuinely preparing Spain for EC membership. So those were the good old days when democratic conditionality still worked in Europe. Um, one thing that I find very striking, given the reputation, if you like, and the, the, the fame that the Spanish model has achieved, is that there was no roundtable moment. Uh, Spaniards do not commemorate any particular negotiating um, episode. And that's basically because of the sequence with which... Or in which uh, this process took place. Very, very briefly, I don't want to bore, bore you with the domestic details, but the negotiations took place in three separate stages, which I have called uh, pre-election stage, pre-constituent stage, and constituent stage proper. So basically, what happened was that in the pre-election stage, there were formal talks between Prime Minister Swalith and the Democratic opposition. Um, a nine-member opposition committee was created for this purpose. And this nine-member committee represented the entire democratic spectrum. Liberals, Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, Socialists, Communists, and this being Spain, Basques, Catalans, and Ulyssians. Okay, So the territorial plus the ideological cleavage was represented. Interestingly, the trade unions were invited to join this committee, and they declined. And the reason why they declined was, I think, because they felt sufficiently well represented by the Socialist and the Communist parties in particular. So this very close relationship between those two parties and their sister unions uh, is, is a very important aspect of this process. What did they negotiate? Basically, the conditions that the government had to meet in order for the opposition to take part in the first democratic elections. So again, the dynamic is slightly different to the Polish case. The the demandeur was the Spanish government, which was trying to encourage the opposition to take part. Um, And it was the opposition that was playing hard to get. And basically, those um, conditions included the legalization of all parties and unions. The crux here, of course, was the legalization of the Spanish Communist Party, which the Spanish right, the armed forces, and others um, weren't particularly looking forward to. Um, Respect for freedom of speech, freedom of of association, freedom of assembly, etc. The negotiation of an electoral law, this is a very important part of the the, um, process, of course. The rules of the electoral game, and by the way, the 77 electoral law is basically the one that still exists today. And finally, and this is really the only aspect that wasn't met, the recognition of Spain's territorial pluralism. Spadeth very cleverly argued that um, he hadn't been democratically elected, nor had the opposition representatives, and therefore it would be presumptuous of them to prejudge the outcome of the subsequent constituent process in such a crucial structural matter, such as a territorial issue. These talks, therefore, which took place between approximately January and April 77, resulted in an informal agreement Which translated into specific acts of legislation, as a result of which the first elections were held on the 15th of June 1977. Again, the difference with the Polish case is clear. These were totally free elections to a uh, democratically elected parliament without any constraints, unlike those that existed in the 89 elections in Poland. The second stage took place in the summer and early autumn of 1977 the nature of the negotiation, of course, had changed because elections had taken place. So basically, this was a multi-party negotiation, no longer just the government and the democratic opposition, but a negotiation involving all parties that had been elected to the new parliament. And these talks produced two very important uh, pieces of legislation. The most famous are the so-called Moncloa Pacts, which I'm sure many of you have have, uh, heard about. And they involved... Basically, two things. First of all, very important uh, structural economic reforms and the introduction of direct taxation. So, I regard this basically as the birth of the modern Spanish welfare state. And additionally, a whole battery of um, legal modifications, legal um, measures, which basically aimed to bridge the existing legislation with that that would be approved once the constitution was in place. The other item, much more controversial item, was the Amnesty Law, also passed in October 1977. And here what we have basically is amnesty in return for impunity. In other words, all those who were in prison at the time for having opposed the Franco regime, including through the use of force. So this benefited terrorists, such as members of the Basque terrorist organization ETA, were freed. And in return for that, um, civil servants or uh, people in the service of the Franco regime who might have committed acts of uh, might have com- committed crimes against humanity and so on um, were retroactively amnesty as well. In other words, as a result of this, uh, there were no trials, no truth and reconciliation commissions, no formal attributions of blame, no apologies, and so on. Let me stress that it was the left that that, uh, advocated this amnesty law most strongly. This is an important point to keep in mind. It was not the right that was seeking this concession. It was the left that insisted on this legislation. And secondly, I would also argue that there was no popular appetite for anything more ambitious, at least not at the time. Um, Two key differences come to mind, or three key differences, when comparing the Spanish and the Polish case First of all, the pacts greatly strengthen political parties. The the protagonists of these pacts are political parties. There's no Nelson Mandela, there's no Lorenzo. Felipe Nolfand was involved, but he didn't play a particularly important role. So it's basically the parties that are the protagonists of this process. Secondly, surprising in, in a Catholic country, the church was totally absent probably because of its own internal divisions. The church was so divided internally that if it had taken part um, by supporting the process actively, it would have undermined its internal cohesion even further. Thirdly, there was no intelligentsia. Uh, The role um, played by the intelligentsia in Poland was missing. But interestingly, the media played a crucial role. And in fact, one particular uh, outlet, the newspaper El País, which was born in 1976, which its first editor, Juan Luis de Bien, called, somewhat pompously, the collective intellectual. Um, but it played a very important role. It was really, this was really the newspaper that explained the pro- these processes to public opinion. Um, let me turn now to the, the criticism of these, negotiate, of these negotiations and of negotiated transitions generally. As in the case of Spain, Spain's elite settlement has come under very heavy fire. Some of it contemporary, some of it more recent. And as it was discussed yesterday, I think there's been more political revision, revisionism than historiographical. And of course, it's fueled by the current political and economic crisis. Part of this criticism, um, I think, falls under the. The heading of what Sir Timothy described as the price of velvet yesterday. In other words, the idea that Spanish democracy was contaminated at birth by its excessive continuity with the past. The head of state today is the same head of state as existed in the months after Franco's death. Much of the political elite, which governed between 1977 and 1982, had held important political jobs under the Frank regime, and so on. Poles are very familiar with this kind of discourse. As in Poland, um, people particularly on the left, some people on the left, have criticized the opposition for being too accommodating. They have argued that the regime was much weaker than it seemed at the time, and that opposition leaders, communists and socialists, effectively sold out. So the idea of a betrayal uh, is also present not the idea of conspiracy, but certainly the idea of a betrayal. And this has led to rather sterile academic and political debates to the relative strengths and weaknesses of the regime and the opposition. And here this idea of the illusions of retrospective determinism, I think, is is particularly uh, relevant. From a slightly more sophisticated perspective, some have argued that negotiations necessarily require demobilization And the criticism here is that political parties um, intentionally demobilized social movements in such a way that has weakened civil society in Spain permanently. I have always found this rather difficult to swallow, Um, not least because surely civil society, um, there isn't an original sin here. Civil society should have been able to recover from that if that had been the case. And secondly, I don't like the idea of political elites turning civil society on and off as if it were a switch. Um, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, It's true that Spanish civil society is weak and has been weak throughout the last uh, 40 years since Franco died. But I think the causes for that are much more complex than causes that we can relate directly to the nature of the transition the most sophisticated academic critique of these kinds of transitions has been put forward by a number of Latin American transitologists who have argued, to put it very succinctly, that pacted transitions or negotiated transitions result in frozen democracies. The phrase for this in Spanish rhymes, so I will tell you what it is. Transición pactada, democracia congelada. OK, that's rather neat little equation. So the idea is that pacts um, necessarily lead to low-quality democracies, basically due to the undemocratic nature of those pacts themselves. In other words, the idea that these transitions brought in democracy for the people, but without the people. Personally, I really don't see any evidence of this in the Spanish case, given the enormous transformations that have taken place in Spain, including, not least, the most radical process of Political decentralization witnessed anywhere in Europe uh, since World War II. I would go slightly further than that, though, and argue that it is probably unhelpful to divide transitions into pacted versus unpacted, or negotiated versus non negotiated. I think this dichotomy is too simplistic, not least, by the way, because there is always an element of pact, even in those transitions. where the ancien regime it, it comes to an end more abruptly, and I'm thinking of uh, Greece and Portugal, for example. But my main objection is that um, the long-term characteristics of new democratic regimes will depend on a very broad array of factors, uh, very few of which can be um, related back to the nature of the transition process itself. I think that this idea that the way in which the transition took place permanently determines the nature of a democracy is, again, um, not very convincing. More specifically, in the Spanish case, what happened is that a democracy which was established by consensual means has not resulted in a consensual democracy. It is a majoritarian democracy. Okay? So Spain's pacted transition, ironically, has act- actually resulted in one of the most majoritarian democracies in Europe. Spain has never had um, a coalition government. All of Spain's governments since 1977 have been single-party governments. Spain has one of the most impressive records of cabinet, cabinet stability in the world, and it has a very low effective number of parliamentary parties, 2.8. All of these are things that you, would, that you associate with majoritarian democracies, not with consensual or cons- consociational ones. The one area where I perhaps would accept this uh, this frozen democracy thesis is with regard to the handling of the past, the historical memory issue. And this, as you probably know, is one of the most hotly contested aspects and criticized aspects of the um, transition settlement. Spain had no transitional justice, as I've explained, as a result of the 1977 amnesty law. And there is now a very lively debate within Spanish academia and within Spanish society as a whole as to whether Spain will have post-transitional justice. By the way, I'd like to strongly recommend a book by a young American academic called Omar Encarnacion called uh, Democracies Without Justice, The Politics of Forgetting in Spain. And interestingly, he actually defends the Spanish model, uh, the forgetting model. Um, As you may know, in fact, last week I saw Pablo de Grief, who is the UN rapporteur for the Human Rights Committee, and he has publicly um, advocated that Spain should repeal the 1977 amnesty law, which is not going to happen, quite simply because there is no social consensus in Spain concerning these matters, um, for several reasons. First of all, I think uh, there are a lot of difficulties concerning this whole debate in Spain. The first, of course, is that most of the repression that we're talking about took place in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, Secondly, there is no social consensus in Spain uh, regarding the rights and wrongs of the Second Republic, the Civil War, and the Franco coup of 1936. This doesn't mean that significant sectors of Spanish society are neo-Francoist. On the contrary, I think only 4 or 5% of the population would describe themselves in this way. But many Spaniards do believe that given um, the direction the Republic was taking, uh, the the coup was um, inevitable or to some extent justifiable. And finally, of course, this whole issue has been compounded by the impact of ETA terrorism, the 800 people ETA has assassinated since 1960 until the year 2011. because many of the policemen involved in the worst atrocities were in fact um, involved in anti-terrorist activity. My personal view is that there will never be a Truth and Reconciliation committee, uh, Commission. I don't think it would help at this stage. Um, I don't accept the claim that it has been impossible to do research in Spain into the past. Um, I think that's an insult to the Spanish uh, historical the academic community. Um, I think there is, a, there is a very considerable knowledge of the nature and the magnitude of the repression that took place both during the Civil War and during the post-war period. But I think a, a great deal can be done and should be done with regards to reparation of victims. According to some estimates, there are about 100,000 unmarked graves in Spain. Um, so the exhumation of these victims should be a top priority. In 2006, the Zapatero government passed a historical memory law without the support of the conservative opposition, as it then was. Um, Sadly, as a result of the the lack of a fundamental consensus, this law has not been fully implemented. But just to end on on an optimistic note, last week the Spanish government decided to award Spanish nationality to uh, Sephardic Jews, people of Sephardic Jewish origin. Who simply need to demonstrate that they have some association with Spain going back 500 years. If you are able to do this, which is actually quite easy, you are automatically awarded Spanish nationality. According to some estimates, as many as 300,000 Israelis are planning to do this. So, my take is if Spanish society can do this, surely it can develop some kind of reparations policy. Thank you very much.